This is a presentation on human trafficking, identification, and assessment in the healthcare setting. My name is Clydette Powell. I work at the U.S. Agency for International Development in Washington, D.C. And um, I've been there about 10 years. I serve as a medical officer in their infectious disease division. I have some responsibilities in tuberculosis control and prevention, but another part of my official responsibilities is counter-trafficking in person. So I'm honored to be invited to this conference to be one in a series of trafficking talks, counter-trafficking talks here at, at this um, conference. And I'm pleased that there's so much interest. I also want to say that um, I stand on the shoulders of many others who have done far more work in this area than I. Um, and so I see this as an opportunity to continue to build on their foundations. I also hope that this presentation will complement some of the things that some of you may have heard when Jeff Barrow spoke yesterday. In fact, it would be helpful just to have a show of hands of, of how many people went to that particular session. All right, great. That's helpful. Thank you. What we're going to do within the space of this 40 minutes is to cover a lot of ground. And uh, we'll discuss some of the basics of trafficking in persons. Uh, we'll focus on some of the clues that may tip you off to somebody who might be a trafficking victim. Um, and some of the steps that you might take in that process. But ultimately, what this is all about is to take you from an awareness to some action. And that's really my goal. And we'll close with some resources for where you can go further. Just briefly, who are the victims of this force, fraud, and coercion um, who are forced to perform uh, sex for somebody else's profit? Are, who are forced to labor for somebody else's profit. In terms of, uh, well, there are many people who can be victims, but certainly the disenfranchised youth, the homeless, the runaway, the throwaway kid, where there are as many as 2.8 million, maybe 3 million kids who are living on the streets in the U.S., Youth with a history of abuse, uh, people who are also undocumented workers, um, both in the U.S. and overseas, the uh, migrant, the foreigner, those who are seeking a better life and um, a better income. But anybody really with any social or economic vulnerabilities could be a trafficked uh, victim. In addition, disabled, uh, retarded people also who in their own right um, have vulnerabilities and need protection may be, in fact, victims. So what's the mindset? What happens? I, nobody wants to be trafficked. Nobody wants to be in a position of having to service many men over a night's period or to work without pay or not to be able to leave uh, their quarters. So what happens? Uh, what, you know, what is the mindset of these people? I'd like to describe some of the pieces that um, go into that situation and their character. Sometimes these are people who have unfortunately suffered arrest by authorities who view them as criminals. And so there's a certain distrust of law enforcement, a certain distrust of authority, a sense of 
Um, you know, nobody's going to do me right. And they often can exhibit anger and frustration with law enforcement or other government officials. I volunteer at the District of Columbia Juvenile Detention Center, and I see this. It's, it's difficult for me to see young women, young teenage girls, who already have lost that innocence, who have lost their childhood, who have become mothers prematurely, um, who have been duped by boyfriends that they thought you know, were there for them you know, for a life eternal. Also, the trouble, the paradox is that although they are a victim, they may not see themselves as a victim, and they may not uh, therefore seek help or think that it is they who got themselves into that sort of predicament, that they are the ones to blame, and they hold a lot of guilt. Sometimes what happens is that they are, in fact, unaware that what is being done to them is a crime, that, you know, maybe this is how you... You know, what life is like in America when you don't have a friend and when you don't have an income and you've got to do something just to survive, sort of um, street survivals. Also, sometimes it's characterized by something called the Stockholm Syndrome in which the person bonds with the very person who keeps them in bondage. Um, it was seen many years ago in the Patty Hearst story. I don't, maybe some of the older people here will remember um, that story and how it unfolded. Um, but these are often people who don't recognize that um, you know, the very person that is holding them in bondage is the very person who's committing a crime against them. Unfortunately, these victims are often seen as criminals rather than as victims. And um, that is a major barrier in terms of getting them care. Is the uh, Stockholm Syndrome primarily due to uh, some type of brainwashing, uh, or is it uh, that they might be susceptible to psychological disorders? The question is, I'm just repeating this so others can benefit from your question, whether the Stockholm Syndrome is something that is uh, due to brainwashing or something within their maybe neurobiological makeup. Um, what happens in the Stockholm Syndrome is complex. Um, it has been observed in a hostage situation. That's how it got that name. And people ultimately see their, the person who holds them in bondage as the person who will protect them and to whom they owe something. And if they don't sort of trust and obey, in another sense of the word, that person, that there will be threats against them, bodily harm or, you know, I know where your family live, I know where your children are, I know where your parents are, or you're dependent on me totally. Sometimes what happens is that there is a seasoning, as it's called, um, within the circles of prostitution where the pimp deprives uh, his or her, because there are female pimps, their victim of uh, basic needs of food, of sleep, um, perhaps makes them drug addicted in some way, causes them to be substance abused. And so the only way that they can then get the food, the shelter, the water, the drugs, etc., is to maintain the relationship with their captor. It's a very sad situation and a paradox that people are trapped in and more complex than I think we could deal with here. But it's one of the 
huge issues uh, in handling this. I, I put this slide up called The Faces of Prostitution just to show you the sad progression of two women. I think you see in the, on the left a young woman who looks like any maybe high schooler, uh, maybe your daughter or your niece, a cousin, um, young and fresh-faced, smiling. And over a period of time in her trafficked years in Colorado, and these are photo shots, uh, police shots, you can see the very sad progression. You can see signs of physical abuse. Uh, you can see probably somebody who has also been drugged has some history of sec uh, substance abuse as well. Um, but what you can't see are the mental effects, the, the sense of deprivation, the depression, the um, hyper alertness, um, and a number of fa features that we'll touch on later. And in the picture on the right, again, I look at this and, you know, I see, again, a young woman who, you know, could have had a future ahead of her. And yet, what do you see in this next picture? Someone who's clearly been abused, who's probably been starved, um, has been physically battered um, in the face and probably other parts of her body. And that sort of vacant look, that, that look of, you know, where is life, where is hope? It's interesting if you look at photographs of men who view pornography on the internet or in magazines or their smartphones, that ultimately they get that same look, that same vacant look. I, it really gives me chills to think about what is going on um, and really what the enemy is doing uh, to these souls, and this is what we see. Now, there are a number of health issues associated with victims of human trafficking, and I will strongly encourage you to attend uh, the following session with Dr. Gloria Halverson, who will talk a lot about in detail and in, um, I think, sometimes a difficult to see the health aspects of human trafficking, and also Dr. Catherine Welch will talk about some of the international aspects. So I would encourage you, if you're interested in this, to go to both their sessions. But anyway, what happens is that these, the, the health consequences of human trafficking are because someone has been forced to live and to work in inhuman conditions, places that are dangerous, places that are dirty, places that may have no bathroom, um, and places without access to health care. And uh, sometimes their access to health care is actually regulated by the trafficker himself or herself. So maybe they'll come to a health facility, but the trafficker, the pimp, and the health care provider have something, have a relationship going. It's, um, I, when I first read of this, I was devastated because I think of my profession as being, you know, so pure and noble in helping those in need. And yet, um, this sometimes is a business arrangement so that the, the pimp or trafficker can keep their victim healthy or to make sure that they don't have X, Y, and Z or that they are treated for that. And what that does is that it keeps them from being in the formal health system. So there are no records. There's just simply a payment involved. And technically, that healthcare professional is also a trafficker. You don't have to be um, directly arranging the labor or sex trafficking to be considered a trafficker. In fact, 
you can be considered a trafficker if you are providing the lodging or the transport or providing the food or the clothing or the shelter or the visas or the, the bus and train tickets. So it's a wide circle that's involved in that kind of setup. And also there are a number of health issues. Again, Dr. Halverson and I think Dr. Welch will talk about this further, but obviously substance abuse, um, alcohol, uh, drug issues, uh, physical things such as injuries and burns. Sometimes um, to get people to behave, they will do um, things that are essentially like victims of torture. Head uh, traumatic brain injuries and dental trauma for the dentists out there. This is something that potentially you might be seeing. Obviously, communicable diseases where there isn't access to water or sanitation or ways of maintaining personal hygiene. Reproductive health issues, particularly in those who are sex trafficked. Sleep disorders because, um, for obvious reasons, that the work is done at night. And malnutrition. I would also like to say that um, it's not just the person who has been trafficked that is the victim, but it's also the members of that person's family in the sense that uh, children of women who have been forced into trafficking, labor trafficking or sex trafficking, also are at a disadvantage. These kids are hiding under the bed when their mother is doing her work. They are the kids who are not going to school, not getting the immunizations, not getting the primary health care that they need. So, you know, if you're seeing a, a young woman who is also a mother, you should ask at some point about her children. The mental health issues are the things that we don't see. Um, the, again, the abuse, substance abuse issues, but the psychological trauma, the de daily mental abuse the torture, the depression, the stress, the insomnia, the phobias, the panic attacks. They actually say that being trafficked is, uh, has more sequelae in it from a mental health standpoint than it is being a soldier in a combat zone. And in a way, you can see where this is a combat zone. This is you know, the enemy taking over a soul. So how do we understand the impact just of sexual trauma? Someone has said that sexual trauma is unique from all other forms of trauma because it's a violation of the most intimate and personal aspects of the self. One's own body becomes the setting in which the atrocities are perpetrated. And unlike drug trafficking, where there's an exchange of money for drugs, this is kind of the gift that keeps on giving you know, where the trafficker, the pimp, doesn't lose the commodity, so to speak, that that girl is always in his stable. And it's her own body, her own temple, that's being violated multiple times throughout a 24-hour period. Now, I think the question for us is, you know, how do I know that this person that I'm seeing in the community clinic where I'm working, the the free uh, clinic, free health center, the emergency department, um, you know, the mobile clinic within a community, et cetera. How do I know that this person might be a trafficked victim? So let's look at some of these, these clues. What we see is that you know, these should be tip-offs. They're not in themselves identifiers, but 
Like everything, as a healthcare professional, you need to have your antennae up. You need to look for red flags. It's not just getting the H&P, but it's also looking at the circumstances. You know, does she have hotel room keys? Has there, you know, is there somehow a history of not getting into school or, you know, not doing well academically? Um, is there a false ID? Is there something that's a mismatch? When, let's say, the receptionist at your healthcare facility notices that, you know, maybe this ID card looks like it's been tampered with in some way, or the birth date, um, and but looks like the age don't quite match. Um, they often lie about their ages, um, sometimes to law enforcement who may be looking to see whether they're actually a minor or not. And in trafficking definitions, um, a minor doesn't have to be forced or coerced or there doesn't have to be any issue of deception. Just if they're in that situation, that's considered um, trafficking. Also, a teen who is dating somebody who's much older, somebody who's kind of controlling, who gives all the answers for her, who fills out all the paperwork, um, that could be suspect. Or, you know, somebody who somehow seems to have a lot of cash or jewelry or new clothes, um, which might not be what you would expect for someone of that age. In fact, often what happens is that a young girl is comes from a dysfunctional family, she feels disenfranchised, she runs away, and um, within 48 hours, in fact, that's the, uh, that's the, how quick the, um, the jackal finds its prey, and uh, somebody older comes alongside her and says, hey, I see, you know, you're not kind of like not getting along with your folks, and, you know, I can take care of you, and for the first several months, this is like the sweetest boyfriend anybody would ever want. And life seems so golden. Gosh, he takes me to McDonald's. You know, he buys me jewelry. He's got a really nice car. Um, he's got, a, you know, an apartment with leather furniture in it. You know, all these kinds of things. And then one day, her boyfriend says to her, you know, hey, hey girl, um, I need a favor from you. And he asks for her or maybe tells her that he wants her to have sex with his guys, that, you know, he's got to be part of this. And she resists. And then um, he says, I'm taking things away, and I'm going to, you're going to do this. If you really love me, you'll, you'll do this. And um, anyway, it's, it's a seasoning process that I think is a very sad thing, and she ultimately is trapped. The other thing, maybe talking with... Uh, Parents or caretakers of the, you know, their daughter, although it could be a son, um, their, their child disappears for blocks of time, doesn't communicate with them. Um, you know, they're, they've got uh, a cell phone that somehow the family didn't support. You know, how come their daughter has a cell phone or a pager? And there's just something mysterious and enigmatic about their daughter who's not really communicating with them. And then that daughter is afraid to make eye contact with the parents or caretakers or perhaps you in that healthcare setting. So you need to ask yourself some question here. For example, in your healthcare setting, is that patient accompanied by another person who seems controlling, who wants to answer all the questions, who insists on being in the facility at the time you're doing 
a history and physical, um, who fills out uh, the paperwork and who seems to know all the answers or explains things away. Does that person accompanying the patient insist on giving information to you and won't let the, the patient speak? And can you see or detect any physical abuse? And does she seem submissive or fearful? Yes. The person who, you know, is the, the controlling person, do they sometimes present themselves as very charming in, the, in that environment, or are they themselves kind of uh, just the controlling yeah, the question, just to repeat for the recording, is, you know, does this person who seems controlling, actually, is this person very charming and trying to be accommodating? I would say, in general, that's the case. I mean, they want to get in and get out as quickly as they can. They don't want to raise flags. They may explain away that, and of course, if this person is not able to speak well, um, perhaps they speak another language, they don't speak English, that, that, may, be, that may be their explanation. But the Stockholm Syndrome also sets up things, and he may threaten her and say, you know, I do not want you to say a single word. Um, I'm going to take care of this, I'm going to take care of you, I'm your sugar daddy, you know, just let me do all the talking, and maybe a threat that if she says anything or does anything wrong or insists on having private time with that healthcare professional, that there will be consequences to pay. So, you know, it's part of the, the charm but that alarms is, is how I would characterize that. Also, I'll just mention that um, often what happens is that when this person comes to a healthcare facility, um, and there may be some fee to pay for service, even on a sliding scale. This often just is put into her further indebtedness. So, you know, maybe she gets the health care that, that she needs, but she'll have to see service another client that night. About, uh, about yes. Um, are there any what? Tips about children who have been trafficked? Yeah, in fact, um, there are a lot of children who have been trafficked. And again, I, I think I will defer to the next session and the next other, the other speakers about this who have had some firsthand experience with that. I mean, the girls that I see at the detention center in the district, they are children. Are their children having children sometimes? Um, and there are a number of aspects of their, I mean, I'm seeing them at the detention center where they've already been picked up by the police for soliciting or maybe they've noticed that this kid is a runaway. And so I'm seeing it at a later stage. But in other country settings, actually they, well, all around, they say that the average age of entry into prostitution is 13, and that the average time on the street before a runaway is picked up is about 48 hours. So the, the problem is we don't know all the facts and figures about children who have been trafficked in the U.S. Dr. Jeff Barrows would probably have his finger on that pulse much better than I. Um, but it's hard to get the numbers of people who have actually been trafficked. We, we, it's tip of the iceberg. So, but as I mentioned earlier, children who seem to be neglected, um, who have been um, abused in some way. For example, I 
I'm, I'm a child neurologist, and we saw a three-year-old who was having what was like pseudo-seizures with pelvic thrusting. And this really raised the question of whether there had been sexual abuse in this kid. So, you know, there are many features. I think, again, you being aware of this as, a, as an explanation or a possibility is one way to look at it. There could be other reasons why a child has not had good care, uh, why they're behind on immunizations, why they're not growing, you know, why there's growth failure, etc. Um, it's important just to include that in one's differential for these kids. But the kids of women who have been trafficked are another category. Um, and often what the pimp will do is ultimately try to keep that woman, that woman in his stable as long as he can, ultimately to groom the children, her children, as the virgins that come with a high price, etc. Other questions to ask, um, we're talking about asking yourself, asking the tip suspect, just basic things like where do you eat and sleep? Do you, have, do you have to ask permission to go to the bathroom? Are there locks on your doors? Has anybody in your family been threatened? Um, are you known by other names? Um, is anybody hurting you? Do you feel unsafe? Um, also, just sometimes physical exam, looking for tattoos and branding, because sometimes pimps will brand the, the girls in their stables so that they don't want any other pimp kind of taking their business, and so that's a way of marking them. But there are some important things to keep in mind when you communicate with these uh, victims. Before you question them, do your best to isolate them from the person who's accompanying them without raising suspicion because you won't get, you may not get any answers or you'll get false ones. And recognize that the person who is accompanying that patient may actually be posing as you know, the uncle, the spouse, another family member, the employer who's trying to, you know, help their, um, this person. So keep that in mind, those false IDs in another sense. Yes, ma'am. How resistant are they? I know in some clinics they'll say it's, it's policy to take the patient back by themselves or they'll make it very um, non-suspect. But how, how likely are they to allow that to happen anyway? Or will they just go to another clinic? Um, it's hard. It, uh, let me repeat the question. Um, you know, how likely, how possible is it to isolate somebody like that and get them on their own? I think it varies a lot from place to place. But the usual thing is that if the pimp doesn't like the place where they've brought their girl, they're likely to go to some pl other place. And typically, you'll have them... You know, they're there once and then they're gone. They make a circuit so that nobody sees a pattern. And then, as I mentioned, if there is a pimp who can find a healthcare practice where they're willing to be in cahoots, in a sense, then they don't have that issue as much. Or, I mean, they don't have that issue. So it's, um, I think it varies. It's helpful if your whole team is trained, not just you know, the person who's giving care behind the curtain, but the receptionist who can make some observations, who can make maybe some suggestions, you know, where the, the suspicions are not raised um, as they would be. Or somebody, let's say, if they need to get a blood test, maybe, you know, your lab technician who might be able to, you know, briefly get some information. So it takes a team effort. With the controlling and uh, posing as a, a relative, mm -hmm. um, how... 
do you uh, look at, for instance, like in the Arabic culture where the father is the head of the household, he does answer all the questions, or maybe even an uncle or uh, older brother. Uh, how do you uh, distinguish between the cultural norm there and uh, something like this? Yeah, I'm, the question is in an Arabic culture where an older male is required really to accompany a young person, either quote his wife or daughter, etc. How would you know? I actually can't answer that. There may be, again, you know, maybe my colleagues could, could answer that. Culturally, they, well, they answer questions. They will step out for the exam. That's a very private just for the sake of the recording, Dr. Halverson has said that culturally it is, it is appropriate for them to step out and to allow the privacy of the woman. In some cultures I've worked in, I haven't seen that, where actually privacy of the patient was not part of the, the code of practice. Um, I don't have enough experience in that particular setting to know how that's best handled. So when there is so much mistrust everywhere, it's you would expect that somebody you know, who's being asked to step out may question even why they can't be there and what you're going to do. It might be helpful just as if you were to do a, a pelvic exam, you know, not to be the only one in that room and to assure the person who's accompanied them that you won't be the only one, that somebody else will be there. Uh, I think it's hard to finesse all of these pieces and, you know, like you, I'm on the learning curve as well in terms of how we handle these things. Yes, ma'am, you had a question back there. Back on the slides where you showed the two young ladies, the one blonde and the one Yeah, I think one of those pictures, the progression was over several years, under 10 years. Um, I don't recall for the other one how long that took. But I, you know, I would imagine that this is something over the, could be within a year. It's possible for someone to get that battered. But in this instance, I think the, the one on the right from Pinellas County, it was over, over a number of years. Yeah. The other thing to remember in communicating with these people is that they have been trained never, never, never to tell anybody about their trafficker. They will not admit that the person who has brought them there is their pimp or the person who is um, under whose control they are. Because they're, as I mentioned in the Stockholm Syndrome, they're emotionally bonded with their trafficker. And... Although these people may show up only once, if you can somehow develop a relationship of trust, if you can keep, in a sense, going back to that community, there may be an opportunity at some point where these uh, girls will tell you about their trafficker or their boyfriend. For us at the detention center, there are girls who unfortunately cycle back into the detention center, and they may have been there initially because they were picked up for some other thing, and then over time we recognize that actually their boyfriend has been earning money off, um, off her. Also, in any situation, but particularly in these relationships where if they, you start out with somebody really distrusting you and uh, fragile. 
you have to just take your time. This is not the, you know, 10-minute primary health care visit and then out the door. And I think if you have a whole team in your health facility that is on board about, you know, what to do if somebody might be uh, a um, trafficking suspect, then people will recognize that you need the time, you know, that somebody else has got to see your patients or you have to have some other way of redirecting patient flow. You have to explain your purpose clearly and step by step. These women are traumatized. They don't believe what people have done. They don't know what the next step is. They're quite fearful. You should explain who has access to the information um, that she provides, explaining patient confidentiality, explaining how records are kept, etc. You may need to repeat things and explain them in different ways. She may not understand. She may be nervous, skittish, maybe not hear it on the first go or worried that something is going to happen. Just inquire about her. Are you hungry? Are you thirsty? Are you in pain? Is there anything that's making you feel unsafe? Just be on her side and focus on what was done to her, not what she did. So be careful how you phrase questions, not trying to get a forensic history, but just trying to understand what might have happened to her and and not what kind of crime, so to speak, she could have been involved in. So anyway, if you've gone through that process, which frankly, is much longer than I've presented here. You have to say, well, what do I do now? Okay, so I think this person I'm seeing in my facility might be a victim of trafficking. What do I do? Well, one of the resources you should have, put these numbers up, laminate them, put them up on your walls, explain to people. In fact, I tell people to memorize the HHS number which is 1-888-3737-888. That's a number you should actually memorize. I've called that number. In fact, I called it just about two weeks ago for somebody that I thought had been trafficked or was being trafficked. And uh, this National Human Trafficking Resource Center hotline was wonderful. They stayed on the phone with me for almost an hour, uh, patiently taking information, trying to... Uh, ask me questions that might help with the um, further assessment. Um, they gave me the sheriff, uh, the county sheriff's number and the police department number and encouraged me to call because they are based, um, they weren't based in the location that I was calling for. And I called late at night. And um, the next morning, early Sunday morning, my phone rings, and I'm thinking, gosh, who's calling me at this time? And it was the person on the hotline that I had spoken with the night before. And she said, you know, I'm going off shift, but, you know, what happened? Uh, Were you able to reach the police department? Did you talk with somebody in the county sheriff's office? And I explained to her the information I got, and she said, We won't lose track of this. When you get the name of a deputy and a case number, a case ID, please call us back and let us know. I really appreciated that follow-up, and um, I appreciated her patience and her expertise. And In fact, after speaking with her, I thought, I'd like to volunteer for the hotline uh, because I think it would be, you know, one more way in which to make a difference. All right. Pop quiz. What's that number I told you to memorize? Wow. <laughs> Excellent. You got that right. one 888 Thanks. Pardon? 
Health and Human Services. That this is a government service, and I'll talk. I'll just mention to you, Health and Human Services, one of our U.S. federal agencies, has given a grant to Polaris to run the National Human Trafficking uh, Resource Center, and they take care of the hotline services. In fact, they gave a presentation to the State Department to the um, Ambassador DeBaca just about three weeks ago. And the number of calls that they get in is phenomenal. It was like 15,000 calls over the last month or so. So they're really busy and growing. On the one hand, I'm glad that they have the capacity to handle that. On the other hand, I'm really troubled that you know, that could be the number of suspects that they are dealing with. The number on the top is the Department of Justice. Um, I've not called that number, um, but that would be another number you could try. And they also have... Um, for hearing impaired, they also have uh, the facility, the, the capacity to take that. Yes, sir, you had a question. How do I know that the people, that the hotline people? Yeah, that's, the question is, how do we know that when we call the police department and law enforcement and the sheriff's office that these people aren't in cahoots? I, that's a legitimate question because there are places where there is a payoff for law enforcement, you know, to be in the deal, which actually makes them traffickers as well. And, um, yeah. I don't know how to answer that question. I think it's important to keep that in mind if something is not getting addressed or there are red flags or how to triangulate that information with, you know, another person or agency. Yes, ma'am. I just have a question. How reporting to Health and Human Services is how are we protected with the new HIPAA laws? Because I'm sure that the PIMS and everything are going to hear of the new changes in the laws where the victims get a settlement. I'm sure that will come back yeah, the question is, you know, where is sort of the privacy of information um, in the reporting of a healthcare provider providing this information? I don't know the answer to that. Actually, that might be a good question to ask the hotline people or the, the National Human Trafficking Resource Center. Um, because they're handling that. I don't, I actually don't know how they handle their database and what they do with their information. I would encourage you to, to contact Polaris and ask them that. But that's a good question for me to ask them too. So the next time that question comes up, I can perhaps answer that. Yeah, if, yeah, I mean, he's saying here, if they're minors, there's mandatory reporting. It's just like the suspected child abuse and neglect that we, as pediatricians, are required to report. Suspected. <coughs> it's not up to us to confirm that. That's really a law enforcement issue. But you have a role to play as a health care provider, health care professional. Was there another question? Yes, ma'am. This is backing up a bit. Sure. In terms of looking at tattoos and branding, what do we look for? What do you look for? Sometimes um, I would say, where is the tattoo? What does it say? Um, have, does anybody else have a tattoo like this? You know, is it a brand? I mean, you could ask a girl, you know, how she got the tattoo, what its significance is. Um, 
I'm not an expert on tattoos. I just know, for example, that that's something that we get concerned about. Even at the detention center, we don't let the girls have magic markers to mark on themselves because we really want to avoid reinforcing this branding issue. Um, does anybody else in the audience have experience with tattoos on trafficked victims? I, I don't. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, certainly in the Department of Corrections website, because I get on the DOC for various states and look, they will make mention of tattoos that the girls have. Um, but I don't know how I might distinguish that from, you know, just like. We're going off to get tattoos together. I don't know that. Yes, do you have a question? Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, the comment from the audience is that looking at the quality of tattoo and whether there have been subsequent infections um, might be some indication of whether this was a voluntary tattoo or something quickly done, you know, the way you would brand a cow or something. Yes. Yes, sir. Or uh, could the man accompanying her have the exact same tattoo in the exact same place as to show that's his girl? His stable, yeah. yeah. And the, quite, the comment was, you know, could the, the trafficker, the pimp, have the same tattoo and he's branding his girls um, with that same thing? I, yeah, that may be possible. Yeah. Yes, ma'am. Um, uh, there was a book I was reading on trafficking, and there was a girl, a young girl that was chained to the bed, and she was in that uh, room for about 10 years, I guess, because there were neighbors and everything. How do you find, how do you, like, what are the steps you can take to be cautious about things like that? Because I get feeling that people should have done something about it. Yeah, the comment is about somebody who had been chained to their bed for many years and didn't neighbors hear this or didn't somebody report it. And, you know, we occasionally get these things in the news where somebody is living in a basement for decades or has been uh, the victim of incest or torture, etc. Um, I Oftentimes people talk about human trafficking as hidden in plain sight. It's the, you know, it's right there maybe in that massage parlor or that little nail service that's offered at the trucking stop and, you know, on I-95, where I've sometimes wondered if trafficking is happening there. Yeah, I think this is why we're doing this kind of thing to raise awareness. So thank you for that question. Let me just move quickly on because our time is um, evaporating. just want to um, let you know about some resources. And also, all this information will be up on the web for the, the Global Missions Health Conference. Shared Hope has a resource, a two-part resource package that has um, a training module and also an intake tool that can be used at Shared Hope. And, um, you know, so what can I do? There are so many things to do. 
I would say, you know, it's up to you as to where you want to start. One thing is addressing demand. So fighting Internet pornography, maybe working at a legislative side that uh, relates to advocating laws that criminalize demand. We talk so much about the supply and, you know, the victims, but can't we go upstream and start dealing with the demand? Um, some cities have put billboards with pictures of men arrested for soliciting. Um, some research has looked at impounding cars of uh, men arrested for soliciting, and they've actually seen that that's fairly effective um, to impound their car. Uh, there are also John's schools for first-time offenders where there may be an all-day program that they have to do. They pay about $1,000, and this keeps them from having this on their record. And other people have done research on the effectiveness of John's schools in terms of recidivism. Sex addiction treatment programs, um, and also if you want to get involved in street outreach, if you are a night owl and you want to sort of, um, with another colleague and with some experience, to walk some streets and see what's happening. I mean, for us in Washington, it's K Street, and um, you know it's not far from the White House, and unfortunately, a lot of solicitation going on there. The Internet has, uh, is a two-edged sword, and unfortunately, it has been the source of a, a lot of child porn. It's the fastest-growing online industry, and unfortunately, predators, I mean, if you want to get really tech-savvy about the Internet, probably the predator is going to know how to get everything um, at the cutting edge of the technology. And unfortunately, because of the Internet, you don't need a real brothel. Sometimes they say that the home is where the sex industry grows its clientele as the virtual brothel. So kids who are getting into chat rooms or getting on websites uh, that, you know, purport to be one thing but they're another. For example, there was a website that was called, I think, Water Sports, and it turned out to be something quite um, perverted that related to um, a pornography. Also, the online predators have ways of masking what the name of their uh, website really is, and so kids are innocently led into it. Unfortunately, the recurrent use of online porn uh, just normalizes this kind of behavior as kids see other you know, people being beaten up or sexually abused. And some studies have shown that sexting is done by about a third of the kids, and most of whom think that it's okay to do. And then I think in terms of family structure, porn is, has been seen as a leading pathway to infidelity and divorce. There are a couple of, there are a number of NGOs, but Pure Hope and Covenant Eyes really work to uh, keep porn off the Internet and uh, keep families intact. Arming yourself with information, and I'll have some resources at the end. Families can protect their computers, cell phones, their Internet, uh, monitoring social networking sites, uh, no uh, passwords that, aren't, uh, no, un that are unknown, spending time with your kids, having discussions about these things. There are a number of survivor programs that I've listed here, Outreach, Jail, and Street, Report and Rescue by HHS, um, shelter work, if you want to know more about shelter and aftercare, please talk, talk with um, Dr. Jeff Barrows. And look to train your, your clinic staff on HIV, AIDS, and trafficking. 
a final word. We live in a broken world, and we're entering the stronghold of the enemy. So, you know, we've talked so much about taking care of the victim. Don't forget to take care of yourself. Know yourself. Do an H&P on yourself, in a sense. Get a family history. Is there, you know, is there something within your own family or your own upbringing that maybe is a question, and you need to settle that before you can do your outreach to others? Know where your mental health and emotional health challenges lie. Uh, Know something about how you set your boundaries or you don't. Never go at this alone. Uh, Seek out support and prayer groups and cast all your cares on him because he cares for us. On the last two slides here, I've listed where you get more information from the U.S. government and uh, also the U.N. And the Health and Human Services Administration for Children and Family have a trafficking site. Justice has Office on Victims of Crime. My own agency within the Bureau for Democracy and Governance has international trafficking information and the International Organization for Migration. Non-governmental, your own Christian Medical and Dental Association is working hard to provide, to develop and provide resources for you. International Justice Mission, Polaris, um, ECPAT, and uh, Salvation Army are some other ones that I'll mention. But the final word is this, abolition. So thank you so much.